is an Odyssey original. This is War in Ukraine Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. Today we talk to a Ukrainian who's had to flee his home city. Has stopped him, though, from doing everything he can to help his country's war efforts. And President Biden pledges more military support to Ukraine as defense officials work to ensure that contractors can continue meeting Ukraine's needs well into the future. We start with Roman Vidro, a Ukrainian engineer with experience working on a number of humanitarian efforts, including helping the Peace Corps, now working on projects to help Ukraine during the war. Uh, Roman, you're in the western parts of your country right now, but that's not where you're from. Yeah, exactly. I'm initially born and raised in the city of Kharkiv, which is in the east of the country. And you have probably heard about that city because it was heavily bombed during the first couple of weeks and is still bombed right now. And we made a decision to evacuate the city on the first day of war in order for us to stay productive, have a constant access to Internet and spend less time in bomb shelters. So we relocated to the western part of the country near the Carpathian Mountains. We managed to rent a house in a beautiful village with a decent internet connection. And we have set up headquarters for our our projects. It's our base of operations. And uh, we are quite lucky because we get to go to bomb shelters only about two times a day, uh, which is in contrast to what people do in Kharkiv. This quiet and easy and relatively safe. I, I love the way, uh, by the way, yeah. Roman, only, the, two, the, times only two times a day, huh? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, uh, it, it, me saying that, it sound, sounds quite normal to me, but actually, uh, before, you know, before the war, um, the concept of war was so distant from, from me. It was something happening on the news. And so uh, right now, it's quite interesting how those 40-something days of war have uh, shifted perception and uh, have established the new norm and the new normal for, for us. So like now, if someone is asking me how I'm doing and I'm saying that everything is normal, that would definitely be not normal just like a couple months ago, you know? So it, that's why it might sound so bizarre to you that we are lucky just to go to bomb shelters like once, once or twice per day. You've been saying, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you've been saying we and us. So, so who's with you? Friends, family? Yeah. Um, uh, I managed to help my uh, parents and my family uh, evacuate to safer houses. Uh, but um, the group that we traveled with were my colleagues and a couple of close friends. There are six of us. Uh, but the initial uh, trip that we took, we actually managed to get 12 people into two cars. But we also got uh, one dog, two cats, and even a turtle. And we traveled for three days through traffic jams, replanning our routes so um, we would avoid the dangerous areas and cities that were bombed or the bridges that were being destroyed. But right now, we um, for the first couple of weeks, we had to uh, sleep. There were six of us in a one-room apartment, but then we got lucky and six of us actually moved to a larger house. And so those are my colleagues who worked on my engineering uh, uh, projects before and and also the creative platform management, but also some of the friends who deal with cultural management. We have one expert in cryptocurrency, and it just happens so that we kind of run the projects together and amplify the work that uh, we could do. So, Roman, when you're not in the uh, bomb shelter twice a day, what exactly are you now doing? 
So uh, we managed to launch several projects. Um, the One of them is a service that helps connect uh, Ukrainians who have a decent level of English with the media outlets worldwide. It's like a Tinder for journalists to some extent. We are filling this gap where uh, people just um, are journalists having to use a complex system of fixers and um, that we can get, you know, I'm saying we can uh, give you a new Ukrainian every day because each person has unique stories that really create this uh, emotional connection between the media and the, and the viewer. And we have uh, about 150 people all over the country ready to talk. And we have satisfied requests from 30 something countries from like 150 media outlets so far. And this is one of the projects that could be found at uabrave.org. Uh, but also uh, we have a couple of projects that deal with culture. Um, my girlfriend who is here with us is doing another project where she's showing artists in bomb shelters, people who are not willing to leave their studios, that the, this little artistic world they were creating for themselves in order to freely express their creativity, they are still there you know, in those heavily bombed cities and they're creating art. And this is something beautiful when we are trying to make sure that it's visible, it's out there, it's at some digital expositions and museums and everything like that. Um, some fundraising uh, efforts, some technological projects as we are engineering engineers, we uh, have some requests in terms of defense and security that are quite simple, but really needed. That's also something we're doing. And we're just like, you know, um, switching from one activity to another, uh, day by day, and then just walking in the mountains once our brains are fried. Okay, so <laughs> that's pretty much so. It. So, Roman, you're 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 clearly an entrepreneurial type, uh, and hats off to you on, on on that. And and you're you're good at putting all the stuff together. I'm also though wondering how optimistic you are because you sound pretty upbeat, but you're, you're obviously uh -huh. yeah, but you're obviously aware that that it's a dire situation clearly for for Ukraine. And uh, Vladimir Putin just yesterday uh, pretty much reaffirmed his determination to complete whatever it is in his mind he thinks his mission is. So how does that, if at all, uh, dent, dent whatever optimism you might have? Uh, that's a wonderful question. I was just thinking about it recently. And especially I was getting a lot of requests for interviews after the events of Bucha. And uh, I understand that things... You know, things look terrible and they are, in fact, terrible, but um, it certainly has some effect on me because I'm also feeling scared from time to time. There's a lot of uncertainty, etc. But in the, these darkest times, I, I somehow managed to see beauty in what's going on as well. And that's a really interesting contrast feeling. And uh, because I see like my friends who were small business owners who are buying cars for the front line or like I see game designers who are, desi who are building tools to detect ground troops via satellite images or I see cultural managers who are raising money for medication and uh, this is um, like again engineers who are building something that has never existed before and like create safety for civilians and it shows that like nothing can destroy the free will of civic society, but most importantly, and that's what keeps my optimism up, it shows that uh, creativity, in fact, is the oil of the 21st century. You know, we have this enemy of Russia being a gigantic thing with lots of natural resources, with a territory, with actual oil 
and uh, uh, a whole bunch of people and they are fighting for so many days the nation that is using creativity uh, to come up with initiatives that help our, our army fight better and in a more efficient way and this is a really uh, uplifting feeling that what gives me a lot of pride because you know every grassroots initiative we run is uh, to some extent similar to a machine gun or a bulletproof vest but in in terms of numbers in that particular category in this free creative expression russia is certainly outmanned and outgunned and outnumbered and that's something like these narratives of lies and hatred that they were developing over the years they 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 had our that, that secret weapon of civic society been hidden from you and not accounted for in the strategy and I'm really proud to, to, to represent that part. And I'm really proud to see it all around me. Like no matter what person I encounter in the street, um, this could be anyone from any age group, like 17 to 60, I see how people are using whatever idea they have to get back to Russia, to turn this like creative spark into a fire that makes sure that Russia is paying uh, will pay a terrible price for the for the atrocities they're doing to the country. Well, it makes everybody so, part uh, of the fight, right? You don't. Not everybody is it, a soldier, it, but everybody's doing something. Exactly, and and uh, this is um, this this contrast shower, you know, of of moments when I experience emotional devastation when I go online and I see these images and I hear those stories and in the interviews we conduct and organize, but then at the same time. I see what resilience it results to because this anger combined with, you know, with a plan creates courage. And that's pretty much what I see around in terms of coming up with new ways to, to fight that, you know, that, that nation is, which, which is putting itself on the other side of history. Is it, uh, is, and, it, and, is it possible even at this point in time, Roman, for you to determine how what is happening now in Ukraine has changed you? Oh, I don't think so. You know, to some extent, I think this is something to that 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 will come to me later. Or, or, or like uh, the first several weeks, I didn't even have a chance to reflect and think about it because it was all about setting up some immediate action. You know, expressing that energy in something useful that can help us. Uh, like, uh, that's a pretty normal reaction, you know, to fight back right away. Uh, then at some point, this adrenaline rush, it kind of uh, was substituted with a more stable, more thoughtful approach to work. And uh, I feel like there are way more transitions like that to come until I arrive to this potential point where I could actually tell you how it's affecting me. I, what I certainly understand is that our nation is being reborn right now and every person experienced it, it on the personal level in terms of uh, what, you know, this uh, action of kind of building your capacity because of the hard times you're living through. For different people, it's different because, you know, someone just has to live with the trauma or with loss and someone has to, uh, you know, live with this, um, like idea for a project and these are completely different transformations but overall i see how this will definitely make ukraine stronger and will certainly uh result in in some um development you know some some explosive development 
once the war is over. And this war will end eventually. So it's it, that's what keeps the spirits up, it, regardless of the fact that it's obviously extremely exhausting. And, you know, people are working 24-7. And I'm not even, you know, like people who are actually fighting with guns in their hands and um, in, in these conditions obviously go through a way way dangerous challenge and so every person goes through different transformations but overall i see how it creates a, like the nation in a in in the way that it's shown in movies and in the way that i read in history books i how, see history happening right in front of us that's that's extremely interesting how far away or not far away does that car ride feel now with the 12 people in two cars and four dogs and a, a turtle um i actually looking back i um it's really hard for me to understand how we managed to pull this off so fast and so accurate and um like we had a couple of times when i had to drive for more than 20 hours and right now looking back i'm thinking like wow like how did I manage to drive nonstop for like 20 something hours and like can, repeating this in, from day after day. But now I understand that, you know, this is war. You have adrenaline rushing up and you just do stuff. You know, I'm curious, um, uh, Roman, you, you said uh, in passing, uh, you referred to, to Russia as, as the enemy. And you also referred a little bit later on to the war will eventually end. And, and I suspect you're right one way or the other about that. Do you think you will, for the rest of your life, always now consider Russia, Russians, your enemy? Um, yeah, I think this is this one will stick around for quite a long time. And uh, that's... Um, that's another paradox of this war because the narrative that Russia was building for that entire time for decades, actually uh, was around those brotherhood nations that are, uh, you know, just bound to be together by nature. And um, actually, if you look at statistical data within the last decade or so, the perception of Russia, this positive perception in terms of statistics, it actually flipped up upside down even before the war. Not to mention that this aggression, not even aggression, this, this ruthless, senseless uh, genocide uh, of, of my peer Ukrainians, it, it just um, creates no basis for, uh, you know, ever going, going to that perception of Russia as, as something uh, friendly and um, so, etc. Et and and there is an opinion in, in the people I talk to that emerges that it's not just the politics. So it's not just the Vladimir Putin's war. This perception, you know, was kind of I heard it from time to time in the first days of war. But after those murders, after those uh, things that they were doing that are way far from a regular warfare, you know, laws and ethics. This is something that shows that it was not Vladimir Putin who uh, was killing children or was like doing some specific actions that are now very carefully documented. And therefore, I now see uh, responsibility and in some case, actual um, 
like not even just responsibility, but like it, something that gives me an ability to blame, right? I see that now in, in pretty much every single uh, person who did nothing about it for these decades once the regime of Vladimir Putin was actually growing stronger. And at some point, once it crossed the red line, it was just, it's just impossible for them to stop from within. But yes, uh, there's a common understanding now that it's not just the politicians or decision makers, it's actually the, the entire society that actually let it happen over that long course of time. Because the, the, the worst things in life, you know, they just happen a teaspoon a day, just drop by drop. And that's something uh, that is hard to track down. But I know that in Ukraine, within the last decade, we had like, like a person who was born in Russia in, let's say, like actual soldiers that are coming in, those 20-year-old boys, they had just one president over their entire life, you know, and their peers in Ukraine, they had five presidents, two revolutions, and a war. And uh, it actually shows that these decades that we were apart after the Soviet Union crashed in terms of like actual national sovereignty, they have created a major difference in, in, in perception and they have, uh, with with this aggression and these murders right now, that difference actually comes uh, to the concept of good and bad. Yeah, and you're fighting for your country. Roman Vidrell, engineer there, uh, was an exchange student here in the States uh, in 2010, humanitarian work, and now all those different efforts uh, that he's doing that he was telling us about. Roman, thank you for talking to us. We hope we can speak again. Coming up right after a short break, the U.S. giving more military aid to Ukraine as Russia prepares for a major attack. President Biden is pledging an additional $800 million in military aid to Ukraine after speaking on the phone with Ukraine's President Zelensky earlier today. The U.S. has now promised more than $3 billion in aid to Ukraine during the war. More could be coming. The administration talking to the eight largest American defense contractors about making sure they can continue meeting Ukraine's needs well into the future. Alexandra Lanoshka is a military and political analyst at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada. Alexander, is the U.S. providing enough help to Ukraine to fight Russia? I think it's a the right step in uh, the right direction. I think uh, Ukraine has been rightly calling for more and more military assistance, precisely because the war is entering a new phase, whereby the offensive that Russia will undertake is going to be in the east. And it still, of course, is in possession of territory gained since uh, February in the south and has linked up those territories in and around Mariupol. And so for Ukraine to push out those forces. It needs much more than the anti-tank weapons that's been receiving in mass. It needs to have much more uh, heavy equipment. And the heavy equipment that the United States is providing, along with other allies, is a step in that direction. So how fast can it get there, all this stuff? Because that's kind of the race we're in right now before this uh, big battle that's expected for the East. They're going to need these things. Absolutely. And it seems like previous provision of military assistance that the United States has given to Ukraine has taken perhaps 10 to 14 days. It's going to take a while. Indeed, other allies of the United States, like Poland, Slovakia, have been providing military assistance. So I wouldn't say that there are bottlenecks, but certainly there is a logistical component to this provision of aid that cannot be underestimated. And of course, it's going to take time to figure out all of these things out on the ground. But, of course, we mentioned in the lead-in that uh, they're getting everything from, we said, helicopters to armored personnel carriers. 
What they're not getting are a lot of offensive weapons that they want, right? They want jets, not going to get it. They want some other material, they're not going to get it. Uh, so is this going to be enough to be decisive for Ukraine? Again, I, I, it, it's hard to say precisely because we don't really know what is coming from some other countries, namely Slovakia, which has indicated its interest to provide some of those fighter jets that uh, Ukrainian pilots can probably operate uh, with very minimal training, precisely because they're used to flying such aircraft. And it's very much uh, possible that uh, the United States will green light uh, those transfers and backfill those transfers uh, such that Slovakia and other countries would feel comfortable in so doing. And if more of that sort of aid does come, to the extent that it is coming, then that could indeed help push the balance of probabilities ever more so uh, in Ukraine's favor. Some of these things, are they in the situation where we don't use them anymore, so we're happy to give them? Or do all the defense contractors uh, around here ramp up to replace what we're sending overseas? It does seem to be that with respect to the Javelin missiles, the anti-tank uh, weapons uh, commonly used by Ukrainian forces, uh, they are being drawn from American uh, stockpiles. And my understanding is that about a third of those stockpiles have been transferred to uh, Ukraine. So obviously there's going to be a question about how sustainable this effort can be, but it does seem to be the case still that there is additional capacity for production to be ramped up to fulfill these needs. Of course, it goes both ways. Uh, you might think that it's unsustainable for the United States to provide these javelins, but it's also unsustainable for Russia to lose uh, armored vehicles as it has been in the last six, seven weeks. I think some people might be wondering, where does all this stuff come from? It, it seems like when it's needed or when it's wanted to be given to to some place, in this case, Ukraine, that there's all this this military hardware is it stored somewhere? They're not. They're not just manufacturing it at great neck speed, are they? No, they're they're not. Indeed, a lot is coming from existing stockpiles. So Poland appears to have given uh, about a hundred or so T seventy two tanks. Those were um, just held in storage. And like I said, with respect to the javelins, those too were held in uh, storage as well in U.S. Army stocks. And I think with respect to the laws that the British have been providing, other uh, anti-tank weapons, those two were in storage. Although, again, I think we're going to see a, a ramp up in the production of those weapons so long as the demand exists. And certainly that demand does exist and will exist for the foreseeable future. Alexander Lanoshka, military and political analyst at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada. There hasn't been much good news in Ukraine recently, but at least one video from the country is making people smile. A 77-year-old man was reunited with his dog, which was buried in rubble after Russian shelling. Video shows local police officers digging the dog out with their bare hands and then returning the dog to its owner. Though both the dog and the man were hurt in the attack, they are both doing just okay now. You can find this Odyssey original and others on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Stitcher.